0: Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast, we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to London to discuss the effect of IL-6 antagonists on mortality in hospitalized patients with COVID-19. Hi, my
1: name is uh Professor Manu Shankahari, I'm a consultant physician in intensive care medicine at and St. Thomas's Hospital and a National Institute of Health Research funded clinician scientist.
0: Absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with us, Manu. Um, you're calling all the way from London, and we really appreciate the opportunity to discuss your publication in JAMA. It was published online um, uh, on July 6, uh, 2021. And it was entitled, uh, The Association Between the Administration of IL-6 Antagonists and Mortality Among Patients Hospitalized for COVID-19 and meta Analysis. So this is a really important topic. We've had a lot of uh, COVID deaths, and IL-6 antagonists have the opportunity to uh, decrease that death. So maybe for our first question, a pretty obvious one, um, what are IL-6 antagonists, and how could they potentially be beneficial in patients with COVID-19?
1: Yeah, um, Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor. And in answer to your question, um, IL-6 is a cytokine and IL-6 concentrations are increased in patients with COVID-19. And greater the IL-6 concentrations, greater the risk of more severe disease and greater the risk of an adverse outcome like mortality. And IL-6 has got numerous kind of biological effects, and many of these effects are mediated through um, signaling pathways that can be broadly divided into a classical signaling pathway where IL-6 interacts with the IL-6 receptor um, alongside a uh, co-receptor called as GP130, which is the glycoprotein next to it, and the effect of that interaction is the activation of the numerous intracellular inflammatory pathways like jak signaling and other things that leads on to perpetuation of inflammation, and the classic signaling also has got some resolution uh, mechanisms involved. There are two other kind of ways in which IL-6 exerts its biological effects, and that's Mm -hmm. called as a trans-signalling. In trans-signalling, what happens is that the IL-6 binds to the soluble IL-6 receptor that's in circulation, and then it kind of goes on to do the biological effects that I described earlier. What is the third mechanism, which is even more interesting, is the trans-presentation. What happens here is that a cell like a dendritic cell or any other antigen-presenting cell Gets hold of this IL 6 and tags it onto a cell like a T cell. And that interaction is called the trans signaling. That also has got biological effects. So if you have that sort of construct, um, you can imagine that you could block the IL 6 biological effects and thereby improve outcomes through either blocking the IL 6 receptor and Drugs such as tocilizumab and sarilumab are IL-6 receptor antagonists. Or you could directly have a monoclonal antibody that binds to the IL-6 in circulation. And a classic example would be siltiximab is a good example of that IL-6 antibody. So there will be some differences between the biological effects mediated by blocking the IL-6 receptor versus blocking just the monoclonal antibody targeting IL-6. So to kind of uh, summarize, um, IL-6 is a potent cytokine, Uh, it's got both uh, pro-inflammatory and pro-resolution effects mediated through three different pathways, and you could either block the IL-6 per se or its receptor to see the biological effect, and the biological effect is important because IL-6 concentrations are increased in patients with COVID-19 and greater IL-6 concentration is associated with more severe illness and therefore uh, greater risk of adverse outcomes such as death.
0: So the hope is that by blocking it, you decrease inflammation and mortality. So a lot of clinicians, this may have been the first time that they've heard of IL-6 during the COVID-19 pandemic, um, but we've actually had studies done with IL-6 in the past uh, in sepsis studies. Why would you think that, uh, um, and then those studies weren't uh, successful in showing a benefit, why would it be possible that um, these IL-6 antagonists would work in COVID-19 rather than sepsis?
1: Yeah, actually very important question and something that um, I have um, also wrestled with. So you're absolutely right that many of these drugs have been around in the rheumatology literature in particular, um, but the success of targeting a single cytokine in sepsis has not been successful. And the easiest way to answer that question would be that the, the the pathogens that cause sepsis, the site of infection, the patient characteristics are all different. Uh, you have both viral and bacterial and parasitic causes of sepsis as the infection goes. Um, and the patients of different ages, they come in a different severity and the dominant my- biological mechanisms that are Proximate determinants of the outcome. So uh, uh, the way to think about it is that if you, the proximate determinant is something that will immediately impact upon the outcome and that is in the causal pathway. So it, it is a multi pathway out- relationship to outcome in sepsis patients and the patients themselves are heterogeneous. I think uh, as you would know and others have been in the podcast where we talked about um, heterogeneity in sepsis and therefore the outcomes from clinical trials have been, you know, always been a challenge with sepsis. Whereas what we are dealing with here is a single pathogen illness. It's a virus. The biological mechanisms are uh, little less heterogeneous than what you see in the context of sepsis. And the null hypothesis here being that actually you wouldn't have any benefit from IL-6 antagonists. So when I went into this uh, prospective meta-analysis, which we we're going to discuss, my null hypothesis was that, well, um, I wouldn't expect it to change it dramatically exactly for the reasons that you allude to, which is there is so much of heterogeneity. This hasn't worked in other infections. Why should it in COVID-19? So um, in a way, uh, the it kind of reinforces my um, kind of need to be uh, open about my hypothesis and uh, happy to be proven wrong. Yeah.
0: Okay, gotcha, you gotcha. You, got you. Um, so, um, Manu, there's been a number of randomized controlled trials exploring IL-6 antagonists in COVID-19. What motivated you to go ahead and do a systematic review?
1: So, uh, a few things, really. So, first point I'd raise is uh, the fact that, um, as I explained earlier, blocking IL-6 receptor versus the IL-6 Per se will have um, may have different effects, and that was one of the uh, kind of um, hypotheses that you could make. And therefore, there was a need to figure out if that is that is the case. And the second is that the within the two IL six receptor antagonists tocilizumab and sarilumab, uh, there are pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic differences, uh, especially reported in the rheumatology literature, where the Uh, Affinity for the receptor is greater for serolimab compared to tocilicinab, for example. The third point, probably most important to directly address your question, is we had clinical trials published that show no difference in outcome. An example would be the Back Bay uh, uh, trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine, trials that highlighted uh, benefit for example, the recovery trial with tocilizumab and the REMAP-CAP trial with tocilizumab and sarilumab. And uh, the trials that highlighted harm and stopped early, for example, the trial uh, by uh, Vivian and colleagues in Brazil, published in the BMJ, where uh, they showed that the DSMB wanted to stop the trial for harm. So we had an kind of inconsistent or a differences in signal or efficacy signal between trials, and there was a there was a no unified idea that this could or could not work and to to kind of address this uncertainty, somebody had to do a um systematic review. Now, what we have done is slightly different, which is a prospective systematic review I'll explain uh, to that a little later on in the discussion uh, and that that kind of um, but those were the motivations for doing this work. Yeah.
0: So maybe you can jump into how you did your systematic review then and what was unique about your systematic review and how did it address those limitations that you mentioned uh, in the previous randomized control trials?
1: Okay, so the first uh, thing about the methodology here is that what we did was a prospective meta-analysis. So it is fundamentally different from a meta-analysis in that uh, it uses published and unpublished data or yet-to-be-published data from clinical trials. And um, the protocol is developed with completely agnostic of the outcomes that are coming out in other clinical trials as we develop the protocol. So we, we started developing this protocol in November. Um, and our hypothesis at the time was, you know, uh, look for an association between uh, giving an IL-6 receptor antagonist or an IL-6 antagonist uh, on outcome, and hence the title of the paper, uh, Insulukin-6 Antagonist, um, because we were looking at both these drugs. And the second element of the prospective uh, analysis is that it's collaborative. You are essentially sitting down with the investigators who have done all of these uh, clinical trials, uh, and you're essentially asking them uh, the question, and um, what are the kind of key primary outcomes of interest um, and, and agreeing that primary outcome knowing fully well that the trials that you're going to put into this prospective image analysis may not have collected that as their primary outcome and i think that's important because everybody who's participating in this prospective image had to go and collect that primary outcome and the other and agreeing on some of the key secondary outcomes and then is working collaboratively with the trialists um, to figure out the possible timing for the earliest reliable meta-analysis um, that could be done. And and the third point here is that we are using aggregate data, not individual patient data. So that, that, that is both a strength and a limitation, uh, if you wanted to highlight that as a limitation. The strength being that you are able to collect aggregate data at pace across clinical trials in an anonymized fashion with limited kind of um, need for additional data sharing agreements because it's completely anonymized to an aggregate data level. And and the final point about the prospective meta-analysis is one of the huge benefits is that it reduces research waste, it reduces bias. Uh, because you do not know the outcome of the trials that are contributing to the meta-analysis when you actually do do the protocol development. And you therefore kind of get the maximum available evidence for the research question that are published or are yet to be published uh, to bring together in a pandemic. And I think that is important because you would have a result that is uh, reproducible and unbiased as much as one could given the nature of the trials that, that participate in the PMA. So the primary outcome for the prospective meta analysis is 28-day all-cause mortality. We had around nine uh, secondary outcomes and I think the key secondary outcome that I would like us to kind of consider to discuss would be the progression to invasive mechanical ventilation or death or a need for ECMO um, within 28 days, and that was one of the key secondary outcomes. The reason being that that's clinically relevant, and uh, because if you were to think about it from a health services perspective, there are more patients in the medical wards um, who have got COVID-19 illness than in a resource intensive intensive care unit setting, which has got much less capacity as a, compared to the overall hospital bed. So. Answering that question, thus giving a patient who is not requiring mechanical ventilation at baseline, reduce the need for mechanical ventilation is an important question from a health services perspective and from a patient-centered perspective. And and the third outcome I want to highlight before I get into the results is the risk of secondary infections. I think this became important during the protocol development stage of the uh, work because dexamethasone and other co- or related corticosteroids have become standard of care and 6 antagonists are potent immunosuppressants and corticosteroids do have a, have a fair share of their immunosuppression properties or anti-inflammatory properties shall we say so if you were to combine two of these drugs does it increase your risk of secondary infection so those were the kind of three outcomes of interest from a clinical perspective that i want to talk about and i want to just highlight Uh, Few of the subgroups. The subgroups were dependent on um, hypotheses, and one of the hypotheses, when you think about subgroups in clinical trials, is that there would be differences in treatment effect based on subgroup status. A good example, uh, a, a good example of that would be: Should would you get a similar treatment effect if you give corticosteroids or not? as an example because corticosteroids can standard of care so one of the subgroups that are, that is of interest is whether corticosteroids were co administered with randomization yes no and the second uh, subgroup uh, discussion that one would like to have is if you ha- if you think about respiratory support patients could be having high flow nasal cannula or low levels of respiratory support, or patients could have a non-invasive respiratory support, or patients could go on to have an invasive mechanical ventilation. Would the treatment effect differ across these subgroups? In other words, would you see a heterogeneity in treatment effect based on the baseline risk of um, kind of outcome? Um, so that's an important subgroup. So just to kind of give you that distinction between subgroup and the rationale and the outcomes.
0: Definitely. And I think one of the highlights of your systematic review and meta-analysis was that you obviously didn't restrict by trial status or language, and that you performed uh, the risk of bias assessment, you assessed consistency, and you performed several sensitivity analysis. And I know you'll give us those results uh, shortly. So let's dive into your key findings. Um, what were your uh, key findings? And uh, how did you interpret them?
1: So let's focus in on the primary outcome question you asked, which is we looked at a total of 10,930 patients. These patients had a median age of uh, 61 years. Most were men. And there were 27 clinical trials, uh, data from roughly 28 countries globally. Most of the data came from uh, High-income resource, high-income countries, and high-resource settings. Patients who received IL-6 antagonists, whether it be tocilizumab, sarilumab, or siltuximab, the summary odds ratio was 0.86 with a confidence interval of 0.79 to 0.95, with a p-value of 0.003 in a fixed-effect meta-analysis. In other words, if your control group of usual care or placebo had a mortality of around 25%, patients who got interleukin-6 antagonists will have a lower mortality, and that's roughly between 3 to 4% lower. In other words, for every 100 patients who get usual care plus IL-6 antagonists, you would save 3 to 4 extra lives with this treatment. So that's the primary outcome headline result. As I said, the, one of the important secondary outcomes of interest was, in those patients who received IL-6 antagonists with proficial care, does it prevent progression to requiring invasive mechanical ventilation? The key headline result for that is, yes, it does. In patients who received IL-6 antagonists compared to usual usual care of placebo, the odds ratio was 0.77 with a confidence interval of 0.7 to 0.85. This equates to roughly five less progressors to invest in mechanical ventilation or depth uh, in those who received IL-6 antagonists for every 100 patients we treat. The final uh, outcome-related point I want to make is the risk of secondary infections at 28 days. And here, the odds ratio for risk of infection, secondary infections at 28 days, uh, was 0.99, with a confidence interval that spans 1, which between 0.85 to 1.16. Roughly 1 in 5 patients Get secondary infections when they get IL6 antagonists, and a similar number, slightly lower, in those who get who do not get IL6 antagonists. But overall, there is no statistically meaningful difference between uh, those who get IL6 antagonists versus who don't. And here again, I was genuinely surprised by this lack of difference because what as I explained earlier, what one would expect is that you're giving two potent anti-inflammatory drugs in a, pa- in a patient population known to be lymphopenic. got an average lymphocyte count of one, right, when you look at the literature. So I was genuinely surprised, but it's a good thing that IL-6 antagonists do. doesn't seem to enhance the risk of secondary
0: infections for 28 days.
1: So those are the headlines, but also the outcomes. Do you want me to discuss the subgroups now? Or, um...
0: Yeah, yeah, let's jump into the subgroups and then we can unpack each of these, uh, which you're explaining very, very well. So let's uh, jump into the subgroups.
1: Okay, so uh, the key subgroup that I wanted to just bring up is the uh, interleukin uh, 6 antagonist and the effect of corticosteroids. So um, patients who uh, got corticosteroids formed kind of roughly two-thirds of the study population. If, as a patient, you were allocated to an IL-6 antagonist plus corticosteroids at baseline, you had even better uh, chance of surviving with an odds ratio of 0.77. And there was a significant difference between. Uh, I, I use the word significant not in a statistical sense here. I just want to paraphrase uh, the difference. There was a difference in the treatment effect between the patients who got corticosteroids versus who did not in in the overall comparison. And the progression uh, to um, in the subgroup where. Progression to mechanical ventilation. There was again a benefit a greater benefit if you received corticosteroids Most importantly if you got corticosteroids, you don't necessarily Have an increased risk of secondary infection and I think this is important because what we are saying at the top two Results is that you get a decrease in mortality. So more patients are surviving so your cumulative chance of somebody getting a secondary infection will go up because you're surviving longer and Second, you are not progressing to invasive mechanical uh, ventilation or progressing less. And taking those two things together, you would expect to see more secondary infection if you were to combine the two drugs, but we don't. So that's an important clinically relevant finding. If you combine the two drugs, uh, you don't.
0: Those are really important findings, Manu, so let's start to unpack them. So um, you noted that there was a significant uh, decrease in mortality in those who got IL-6 versus those who did not, uh, IL-6 antagonists versus those that did not, and you reported uh, three extra lives saved. Um, Would you interpret that as being um, a number needed to treat of 33, or or how would you go about speaking to policymakers about um, the benefit that you're seeing there?
1: So, um, I don't, I, I, I try, I'm trying to avoid the numbers needed to treat arguments for, it's well rehearsed in the literature, I just want to avoid that particular point. What I would like to say though, here you could interpret the odds ratio as they are, which is if you get um, an IL-6 antagonist, the odds ratio is 0.86 or a 15% or sixteen, fourteen 14% lower odds of dying and what is probably important to highlight here is uh the significant lack of heterogeneity you you mentioned the risk of bias assessment so as part of the study group uh you've got absolutely brilliant methodologists um some of those methodologists are those who designed some of these heterogeneity tests like professor julian higgins um who is a part of this prospective material analysis and jonathan stern um, the I squared value of low heterogeneity is around 18.2%. So, even though the trials may look very different, the treatment effect is very, very similar. And the point estimates may be very variable, but the overall confidence of our results uh, are, are really high. And the policymakers, for so instance, would need to consider this on uh, face value that actually you got a drug or an intervention. You got more than one drug here. Both Saralimab and tocilizumab have got a decrease uh, decreases the risk of dying in if somebody has got COVID nineteen, um, and it, it and it spans across the different subgroups that we uh, spoke about earlier. And it's got a kind of um, additive, uh, at least additive effect with concomitant treatment with corticosteroids. An argument that often comes up here is that, well, you have done a fixed effect uh, meta-analysis. Why didn't you do a random effects meta-analysis? And that's one of the sensitivity analyses we did. And the random effects meta-analysis point estimate is 0.89. So it's kind of very similar to what you saw in the fixed effect meta-analysis 0.86. The way the random effects meta-analysis does, it accounts for the variation in the variation um, between trials in a slightly different way and you get a uh, widening of the confidence interval. And therefore, you know, to argue uh, based on just that uh, wouldn't be the right thing to do. The focus here must be to think about consistency in signal across different outcomes and looking for the signal for harm, which is secondary infections here, um, is what, you, what one needs to do to make policy and clinical decisions. And I think it's reflected in the, at least the UK, uh, clinical practice guidelines from uh, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence where they have recommended um, IL-6 receptor antagonists as part of standard of care for patients with COVID-19. And the final point probably here I would like to make is the the role of the WHO, you know, they coordinated um, all of this work and um, it's it, uh, uh, it's an incredible achievement and an effort on their part. You know, I get to talk to you about the study but in effect, the WHO has coordinated all of this. And I think it's important therefore to try for those philanthropic organizations and other policy to think about, and uh, and the drug companies involved, to think about actually there are countries where it is impossible for IL-6 antagonist to be bought because of the expense, and it is an opportunity during a global pandemic to somehow uh, help or contribute to the treatment distance that's made globally in these countries. So I think it's a, it's a, the, the data is strong enough for me to argue for it, and it's an important enough for people around us who have got greater kind of role in policymaking to consider it seriously.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, a decrease in mortality, a decrease in requiring medical ventilation, which is really important because, as uh, we saw early in the pandemic, uh, there was a great burden placed on the ICU. So a medication that decreases ICU admission and mechanical ventilation is really important and one that doesn't cause any harm. Maybe you could talk about um, this co-administration with corticosteroids because uh, the take-home message I got from that was that every patient should be on um, uh, corticosteroids before initiating IL-6 antagonists, and that should be uh, the standard of care. Um, and it definitely doesn't uh, appear to cause any additional harm, as you had mentioned, uh, with increased infection. Maybe you could comment on that for us.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important point. So the way the clinical practice um, guidelines would work, which is what the WHO guidelines um, and the um, corresponding uh, living guidelines in the BMJ highlight is exactly that point. Um, the current standard of care is corticosteroids and therefore patients who get IL-6 antagonists are those who are hospitalized, who require some oxygen um, or uh, some form of respiratory support. Uh, and if you, if you were to kind of put a... Um, A big circle to start off with, this is a whole population of patients with SARS-CoV-2 infection. A small proportion of them will get into hospital, uh, requiring hospitalization, hospital-based care. And around 70 to 80% of hospitalized patients will require respiratory support in some shape or form over the course of their illness. And I think it's that target population that we should uh, give IL-6 antagonists to. The thing about corticosteroids, I just come back to one small point, uh, which is look at the overall odds ratio for the treatment effect that you get with IL-6 antagonists. The overall odds ratio is 0.86, the point estimate. And the odds ratio confidence interval is 0.79 to 0.95. When you think about combining two interventions, what you would want to see is the odds ratio of the combination dropping below the odds ratio of the IL-6 antagonist? Otherwise, there's no point in combining these two drugs. And in the in the figure two in the JAMA paper, uh, we anla- we analyze all of these three outcomes by treatment group and corticosteroid use. And the anti-IL-6 corticosteroid use had an odds ratio of 0.78 um, with a confidence interval of 0.69 to 0.88. I think um, it's important that these the correct interpretation of this data is that there is added value in giving IL-6 antagonists to those who get corticosteroids. I've seen some misinterpretations in the, both in, both in the social media and other spaces where people have said that well, IL-6 antagonists don't work without corticosteroids, I mean that is not the right interpretation of the statistical analysis that we've done. The interpretation is there is added value in giving. IL-6 antagonists to those who got corticosteroids with standard of care, and that's reinforced both by the results of the corticosteroid systematic reviews that are published elsewhere. Well. And the second question here would be that: Is there a treatment effect difference between tocilizumab and sarilumab? And when you look at the corticosteroid uh, subgroup analyses, um, the odds ratio for tocilizumab is around 0.77, partly because most of the data from this um systematic prospective meta-analysis is contributed by tocilizumab trials. Um, the sarilumab point estimate is 0.92 and the confidence interval is wide. And it's not that the sarulimab has any different treatment effect. If you look at the way we presented our data, it's abundantly clear that quite a lot of sarilumab trials happened earlier on in the pandemic where corticosteroids were not standard of care. More patients in the saralimab arm had mechanical ventilation. In other words, they were much more severe. And if you think about the other outcomes that are highlighted, the treatment effect of IL-6 antagonists seems to be that if you weren't mechanically ventilated, the chance of progressing to mechanical ventilation is decreased. And that's also reflecting the respiratory failure subgroups. The, the correct interpretation is that actually between the two drugs, there is hardly anything to choose from provided they all get corticosteroids at the start.
0: So, i want to dive into uh so Simone, i wanted to ask you a question about the cost of these medications so corticosteroids is obviously a whole lot cheaper than these i l six antagonists, and that has um, particular relevance for um uh, those in developing countries um where this medication is very costly and not readily available um if you were uh, in that situation where you had to choose which patients would benefit the most and maximize the delivery of IL-6 antagonists. I assume that you would make sure that they first on corticosteroids, but if you had to choose a select group of patients based on the oxygen status, which patients would you say, I would definitely give IL-6 antagonists versus those I'll say, you, you know what, we're not going to get as much benefit, so we should maybe lessen a delivery of that medication.
1: Okay, great question. So the answer to this question uh, is in one of the subgroups that we did. So we had four respiratory subgroups. The respiratory subgroups were no oxygen, oxygen less than 15 liters per minute, non-invasive ventilation, high-flow nasal cannula, or oxygen greater than 15 liters per minute, and then those patients were on invasive mechanical ventilation or ECMO. And this is reported in the one of the uh, supplementary files. By the way, there are around 10 uh, supplementary files of data and analysis that people can look at. So when you look at the difference in treatment effects across these four subgroups, the first point I want to make is we did not have patients who did not receive oxygen, um, enough patients who did not receive oxygen, to make any recommendations or assessments. We have three trials, 27 patients, and the total number of events in those trials was four. So we do not have enough data to make say anything about them. When you look at the other three subgroups, with is oxygen less than 15 liters per minute, non-invasive ventilation or high-flow nasal cannula or oxygen greater than 15 liters per minute, and the IMV ECMO subgroup, there is a greater benefit in the... Oxygen less than 15 liters per minute and the non invasive ventilation subgroups. And this is the adjusted odds ratio we report. And the adjusted odds ratio are 0.82 and 0.84, respectively, compared to those who needed INV or ECMO. And I think, in answer, therefore, to your question, which is the patient population you would target, I would target the uh, patients who are in hospital on oxygen therapy. And or some form of non-invasive ventilation, including high flow nasal cannula. That will be the target population who will benefit from a health, healthcare kind of healthcare services perspective in that you would prevent uh, progression and need for mechanical ventilation. When you think about resource limited settings, it is not just the drugs that are resource limited. The mechanical ventilation is uh, a resource that is limited too. Uh, and I just want to kind of qualify this by saying, I haven't worked in a resource-limited setting since my medical training in India, so I do not want to kind of proclaim what they should do, but I think on balance, that is the subgroup uh, that I would focus on if I were doing a policy decision in a resource-limited setting.
0: I get you. And then, for, for some clinicians, um, an, an oxygen flow of less than 15 liters is a pretty wide group. It could be patients on just, you know, 2 liters of nasal cannula oxygen versus 6 liters. Um, the same is true for high flow. Uh, the high flow settings go from 93% percent FI 2 60 liters per minute, all the way down to, um, you know, 30% percent FI 2 25 liters per minute. Were you able to get any uh, clarity on any uh, narrow group of patients um, that would benefit more, or would you argue that you know, based on uh, the fact that uh, uh, the less that like, you know, those on just two liters or three liters would probably uh, you you probably hold off on giving those IL6 antagonists, or was this, was there just not enough data?
1: So I think that um, we did consider that important question. Uh, we couldn't really get any more granularity um, in the data, partly because the eligibility criteria of clinical trials were kind of not set by us, they were pre-decided. But I think more important than that, the peacetime non-invasive ventilation, high-flow nasal cannula debate in a resource-rich setting no longer holds true during the course of a pandemic. I mean, we can, uh, you know, I, I kind of love that debate. Uh, and the trials surrounding those two separate things but actually frankly what is a critical care unit during a pandemic uh, is a hard thing to define even in a resource rich setting like mine i am my hospital is guys and St hospital just across the house of parliament we do not have any kind of resource limited kind of arguments to make yet we were spread across the hospital providing all different forms of respiratory support at the peak of the pandemic so uh, it's kind of a rich debate to have after the pandemic ends about what actually is a critical care unit. But at this stage, um, the it's very difficult to make a nuanced argument between high nasal cannula and NIV. I get your point about the oxygen less than 15 liters per minute. It's a hard debate. And uh, our data, if you look at it, we've had roughly 3,900 patients in that subpopulation with... Uh, around 560 events, 559 to be precise, 3,908 patients in 15 trials. And the pooled odds ratio is around 0.81 for that population. So uh, with a confidence interval of 0.67 to 0.98. So actually, um, if I was a patient and I had received corticosteroids and I wasn't getting better, I would expect my clinician to have thought about IL-6 antagonists and made a judgment about whether, as a patient, I should get it. And if I was a difficult patient, I would ask for it as to my doctor who is treating me.
0: Gotcha. And uh, with the caveat of making sure that uh, any untreated bacterial infections are addressed. Um, uh, Manu, I wanted to bring up some of the comments that the... um, um, uh, that doctors Matei and uh, uh, Lukam had brought up, and, and they had a really great editorial uh, on your paper. Um, so one of the questions they mentioned was, why was this benefit seen um, in uh, at 28 days mortality and not at 90 days? And, and that's a really important thing for us in the critical care literature because we've seen studies where we see a benefit at 30 days or 28 days, but it doesn't seem to last to 90 days or 120 days. What would your response to that be?
1: So I think it's a very uh, valid point that they are trying to make which is that actually we only show the 90 day effects and we are not we only show the 28 day effects and the 90 day effects isn't spectacular. So the counter argument, um, I, I, I say this because um, we tried to get the 90 day results and actually the trialists um, hadn't completed, some of the trialists hadn't completed the 90 day follow up. Uh, and the data wasn't available for them to immediately uh, share with us. But I think if you look at the uh, point estimates, they are the same. It's a confidence interval that is slightly uh, wide. And the other thing I would like to kind of uh, point out is the 90-day survival analysis reported in in our main supplement, the E-Table 5. And if you look at that, the uh, the IL6 versus control, the hazard ratio for all patients uh, is around 0.87, and and the duration of um, invasive mechanical ventilation in patients receiving IMV at baseline was uh, slightly shorter, but nonetheless, it is um, it, 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 it's it's kind of point. Uh, 8 four, I think 0.84 and minus 1.82 in terms of the shorter duration. So there are effects that are seen that extend beyond the uh, 28 uh, days. And it's a valid critique that actually the number of, um, the sample size of 90 days is not strong enough for us to make a judgment. And I think that's some of the things that uh, folk will eventually report uh, when they have clinical trial related data. And the last point around the 90 day is If you look at the REMAP-CAP publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the 90-day signal is still true. So I think whilst it's an interesting argument to make, um, I wouldn't expect that that would preclude us from administering IL-6 antagonists to make people live.
0: So we may just have to wait for another review uh, that examines 90 days, which would be uh, pretty useful. But as you said, the signal looks pretty consistent. Um, One of the other uh, queries that they brought up uh, was the baseline risk of death. Uh, uh, No Apache scores available. Um, And obviously, if you have an imbalance uh, in terms of um, severity of illness, uh, you could see findings um, that go one way rather than the other. What was your response to that?
1: Um, so, this is one of the limitations we highlight in our manuscript that actually we haven't accounted for the baseline descriptor explicitly. Having said that, what we do do though is to give respiratory subgroups, subgroups by CRP status, subgroups by vasopressor therapy and renal regression therapy. And I think... Um, I don't believe that that argument completely holds true that, uh, you know, we haven't done that. We have done that the best possible alternate approaches that we could get. Um, for example, as the Berlin ARDS definitions highlight, if you got a PF ratio uh, that goes up, you got a greater risk of adverse outcome or the predictive validity analysis in the um, ARDS JAMA paper. And that is what you get when you do a respiratory subgroup. Even though we don't report the P by F ratio, that's what essentially you do. You don't get mechanically ventilated for fun. You get mechanically ventilated because you've got respiratory failure. So I think that argument is an interesting argument. Probably a better argument there would be that actually the trial-specific eligibility criteria may be different. There may be geographic differences in outcome. There may be trends uh, in the outcome across the pandemic that could have been uh account, that could have come to some of the things that we see that to me is a stronger argument than the lack of uh baseline mortality risk that is proposed in that editorial in uh, that's just my view
0: okay i think that's a good response um i had a question so um You had mentioned the different levels of oxygen status and you probably motivate that if there were limited resources, probably give IL-6 receptor antagonists to those less than 15 liters or those in high-flow non-invasive ventilation. Um, Some have raised the question, you know, the the data doesn't seem to support giving IL-6 antagonists to those who have been on the ventilator for uh, several days, but what about those who you intubate within 24 hours, uh, did you have any data on that? Um, uh, d- because those patients obviously had a worsening in their oxygenation status. Um, is giving an R6 antagonist uh, appropriate there or has the damage already been done and there's no benefit?
1: So, uh, important question, getting the time uh, sorted is a hard, has been a challenging thing with this prospect analysis because the trials define it differently. What is important to highlight to answer that question directly is the eligibility criteria for clinical trials. Many of the clinical trials, the inclusion criteria were within 48 hours of hospitalization or ICU admission, and therefore, if you have a patient who is in a critical care unit and it's within 48 hours of critical care admission or a hospital admission and they've got respiratory dysfunction, I would have no hesitation in giving ILC 6 What is difficult to answer from the work that we have done is would somebody on a mechanical ventilator let's say from not to three days three to six days more than six days would they have a different treatment effect we haven't done that analysis and i wouldn't want to make a you know make an assumption and conjecture around that topic um and i think that's a question that probably needs addressing can we delay versus early il6 therapy. There's also this argument that you could get away with a lower dose of IL-6 antagonists because you're giving corticosteroids. Again, it's our, we did try the low versus high dose, but we did not have enough data to make a strong statement, and therefore we didn't.
0: Gotcha, I appreciate you highlighting um, uh, those facts. Samanda, so, there's no perfect um, systematic review, no perfect meta analysis. So, Hypothetically, if you had to redo um, this the systematic review or if you're planning to do a subsequent one uh, in the next year uh, looking at maybe 90-day mortality, what would you have done differently or what advice would you give to any investigators or researchers to bear in mind when they're performing this systematic review and meta-analysis to address any limitations that you had or any lessons that you learned along the way?
1: Yeah, great question, Perfect. Um The first point I would make is um, get people with different skill sets and different often contrary viewpoints around the table to develop your protocol and have methodologists on board who know what they're doing uh, but even if you are trained as a methodologist We need to do a medical training like I did. I did a masters in EPI from the London School, but I didn't even attempt to do an analysis without the methodologists around the table. And some of the elements of prospective meta-analysis, me, I would probably say you do need to adhere to as closely as possible. Things that I would like to do differently. Well, it's always um, you, we wanted to do some explore the hypothesis that the greater the IL 6 level, better the treatment effect, but the trials didn't have that data. Um, we wanted to actually do 90 day mortality uh, with more data. We didn't. And part of me uh, would like to say actually, you need to find a balance between what is required in a pandemic uh, which is immediate clinically relevant data that is reliable to inform a guideline versus what is the overarching clinical question that everybody would like to get answered to and I think it brings me back to one uh, question which is do you survive um, with greater morbidity having received a drug. And therefore, the timing of secondary infections could be kind of opened out further out because it could be till you leave ICU or hospital not just fixed at 28 days. That's one argument to, that I would probably pursue. The second argument I would like to kind of highlight is the peer-reviewed trials versus the published trials during a pandemic and I think it's an important uh, question um, that came up during our debate. Actually, you're going to now put out data around 11,000 patients and a uh, few of those patients and trials haven't been peer reviewed. So, would you wait until you get the peer review of all of those trials and therefore better list of outcomes? So, those are the two things that comes to mind that I would probably do slightly differently.
0: And then in terms of, um, we've obviously gone through a big COVID-19 pandemic and uh, surprise, surprise, there's going to be another pandemic in in the next few years, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years. Um, What advice would you give to researchers about preparing uh, for that pandemic in terms of randomized trials or systematic reviews Um, so that we're able to address these questions uh, a lot more quickly. Uh, I was really impressed that you were able to get this data out so quickly uh, in the space of less than a year. But we obviously need to try even better uh, for the next pandemic.
1: Oh, great question. So uh, I think the answer there is fairly straightforward. First is, actually never believe that uh, you can do it all by yourself. You need to kind of form consortia of investigators uh, who will kind of have the both the breadth of um, geographic breadth, as it were, global uh, ideally, or within your own country, form a network where, in the course, of if if you get a pandemic, uh, it's like a switch on to activate. And here, I think, ISARIC, um is a very good example where they had. Um, what what you would call as quite a lot of dormant protocols that they could activate pretty quickly. So it's not an individual pursuit in a pandemic. It's a team sport, and uh, and that team sport uh, essentially would mean that you would invest a lot of effort and time preparing for a pandemic that may or may not come. And the investments there are fairly uh, straightforward, which is uh, methods, methods, and methods, uh, and the infrastructure for doing the trial. So that's one. I think the, the two examples there is the ACERIC and probably the critical care community would be, uh, Remap Cap with the design that was set up for pneumonia and then had a pandemic appendix that you could activate rapidly. And the second thing I would say to younger researchers, uh, you know, would be that actually don't try and shoehorn yourself into one space as a scientist. Um, so for example, you know, I, I, I trained as an epidemiology when I was training, and I also did a PhD in immunology, and I think it came in extremely handy when I had to do uh, refocus my efforts to do immunology of COVID-19. And uh, that, that essentially, in other words, for young researchers, acquires a diverse set of skills, that can be implemented as part of a team. You're not going to be the best in everything, but you would know enough to help others who are who got greater knowledge in immunology or greater knowledge in epidemiology because you can talk the lingo uh, and contribute effectively. So that's for those who are young and training. That's what I would say. For those who are established, um, I would probably say, I think let's get together and uh, let's find ways to enhance collaboration globally so that questions could be answered rapidly in you know, global trials or equivalent. And without patients and families who contribute to research, none of this would be happening. And I think the public um, interaction of clinicians and healthcare systems need to get better. And I think they need to develop confidence in the fact that when clinical trials are developed, um, they do come with a risk that it's a new intervention, but the risks have been kind of accounted for with the knowledge we have thus far. So I think getting public on board to participate in clinical trials is important. I think mean, big, a big shout out in the UK perspective to the National Institute of Health Research and the Department of Health, where they essentially had that um, kind of view in mind and they highlighted the urgent public health trials of trials that are going to recruit only patients during a pandemic and uh, we had recovery and remap cap trials enrolling patients like crazy so three things, those are my three kind of uh, take home for future pandemics
0: Yeah, those are really wise words and I appreciate you uh, sharing them with the audience Manu So Manu, you've been very gracious with your time and um, as we get to the end of this podcast I just want to give you opportunity to share any concluding remarks with our audience, um, as well as in, uh, if we haven't covered anything uh, during the podcast that you feel that our audience uh, should know about, or anything that struck you that has struck you during this pandemic um, that you wanted to reflect on. So I'll give you the final word.
1: Thank you, John. I think a big t- my first reflection would be that a big thanks to patients and families and the WHO for the... Kind of all the work that they're doing in coordinating a response during the pandemic, uh, specifically for about this uh, prospective meta-analysis uh, for the younger scientists um, in the in, in listening in, I would say uh, learn that prospective meta-analysis method and get yourselves embedded in a bigger group to actually do some of the uh, you know hard grind for that sort of approach. And the concluding sentence about the paper would be that. I can say with reasonable certainty that IL-6 antagonists um, does seem to improve 28-day mortality over and above what you would expect to see with usual care. So I would urge people to kind of uh, read it, consider it, and uh, as always, email or Twitter to uh, get back to me with any questions. And thank you so much for having me.
0: No, it's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, for our audience, uh, we discussed the JAMA online uh, paper published July 6, 2021, entitled uh, The Association Between the Administration of IL-6 Antagonist and Mortality Among Patients Hospitalized for COVID-19. Amanu, congratulations to you and your team and really outstanding work. A very big thank you to Dr. Shankar Hari and a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.